we'll have this uh, little cup up here. And so uh, the question is, is it half full or half empty? And I won't ask for like a show of hands, but if you think to yourself, when you look at that, like, oh, you know, Mitch didn't fill it up all the way. Or are you, are you thinking that? Like, that, that cup needs to be filled up a little more. Or are you saying, or are you thinking, oh, why is that cup half full with water? You know, which one are you, a half full or half empty person? And we would say, well, it depends, right? Uh, it depends on how you look at it. Do you focus on what is in the cup, or do you focus on what isn't in the cup? It kind of depends on your perspective. And you could actually say, well, both, it's half full and half empty, right? It's kind of both at the same time. You could, you could argue for that. And you could, al- you could also say, like, well, it also kind of depends on how did it start. Did it start empty, and then it got filled up? So you'd say, okay, it's been half filled. Or did it start full, and then half of it got drained out, so you say, well, now it's half empty. So it could depend on how you go it that way. But we, we usually say, is the cup half full or half empty? And we, I don't really know the origins of this question, and I was Googling to see if anybody knew, but it, it's powerful because we instantly understand it. We kind of use it to say, uh, is someone like a pessimist or an optimist? Do you look at the situation as, you kind of a, half, a cup half empty person, or are you a cup half full person? Your attitude about your situation, of a person or your circumstances, it's supposed to tell us. It depends on how you see it. It depends on your perspective. Are you seeing the cup as half full? Or are you seeing the cup as half empty? Are you seeing what's there in the situation? Or are you seeing what's missing? And for me, I tend to be a cup, kind of half empty person. I tend to see what's missing. I see what could be added to it, to what needs to be improved, or for weaknesses, or areas of growth. And I tend to overlook the, the good things that are there. I tend to focus on uh, what I disagree with with a person rather than what I agree with. And I have to consciously remember to say, well, this is what I agree with and affirm and appreciate and celebrate what are the things that are good here and what are the things I agree with and what are the things uh, that I'm, I'm liking and enjoying because I quickly see you know, what's missing that we need to work on or what's, what am I disagreeing with and let's talk about that. And you know, both have their advantages and disadvantages. And you know, we often think one is better than the other, but I think both have advantages or disadvantages. And so how about you? Are you a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of person? But there's also deeper questions to be asked because we could say, okay, well, who filled the cup in the first place? If you're looking at your life or your situation or this person or these circumstances, okay, who filled up the cup? Who Who's the one that put whatever it is in your life there. Who put, if there's good things there, and you're saying, well, I'm a, half, I'm a cup half full person. Okay, well, who put that stuff there? Who put those good things there? Did you fill it up on your own? Or did someone fill it up for you? And if a cup's half empty, okay, did you, do you deserve to have it filled up more? Is it like, okay, well, my cup is half empty, and I deserve more here. I'm not getting what's coming to me. You know, do you, or if your cup's half full, did you deserve to have it? Fill up half full. So who's putting it in? Who's filling up the cup? And did you deserve to have it filled up that much? Or do you think you deserve to have it filled up more? And today we're beginning, as I mentioned, a little mini-series leading up to Christmas. And I'm calling it the First Christmas Carols. And every year we sing these beautiful songs uh, called Christmas Carols about the birth of Jesus and its significance. And many of them are very old. Here's just two of them, Hark the Herald Angels, that was written by John Wesley in 1739. 
Uh, Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts in 1719. But while they, these are old, they are far from being the first songs sung about Jesus' birth and its significance. In, in the first two chapters of the Gospel according to Luke, uh, there's several songs sung as Jesus is uh, coming into the world. And it's, it's almost like a musical. You're, you're reading along in the story and events are happening and all of a sudden you have these characters bursting out in song. You know, it's like you, you, have, you, have you ever gone into a movie or something or sort of watching a show. I don't know, when I was a kid, I didn't really like musicals, so I'd be like watching the show. I'd be like, sweet, there's this action. All of a sudden, the characters start singing. It's like, ah, oh, you know, this isn't what I was getting in for. You know, like Disney movies. Or, I mean, Disney movies, I love those as a kid. But it's like, Disney movies, they're going along, and all of a sudden, you know, you have in Pocahontas, and all of a sudden, she's singing the song. It's like, what's going on here? That's kind of what happens in the Gospel according to Luke. Things are going, happening, and all of a sudden, Mary bursts out in this song. It's like this musical. And uh, as these... Um, these next two weeks, we're going to look at uh, these songs sung by people. Uh, and then uh, on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the song that's sung by heaven, the angels of heaven. And today we're taking this close look at the song sung by Jesus' mom, Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, uh, that's where we see this song. And Mary's story is quite amazing, if you think about it. She's probably about 16 years old when she sings this song. And we're told in verse 27 that she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And betrothal is somewhat similar to engagement for us these days, but it's different. Betrothal was um, basically they're already married, um, but they hadn't yet uh, consummated their marriage. There would have been a wedding ceremony at some point, and then after that they would have uh, completed their marriage uh, in the marriage bed and uh, starting to live together. So they are already married by basically by being betrothed, but they haven't had the wedding ceremony yet. They're considered married at this point. Uh, but obviously they haven't done what's necessary to become pregnant uh, because they haven't had the wedding ceremony. And Joseph and Mary both lived in the backcountry town of Nazareth. In other words, these two are not elite. They're not like people living, uh, the, the people you'd look to as like, hey, these are influencers. These are people that everyone knows that we're looking to them for, uh, like, hey, these people are going to uh, lead us, and they're not people that anybody's looking for. They're not impressive. Joseph was a, a carpenter, a blue-collar worker. They're not well-known people of society. But Mary is chosen by God for an amazing task, to give birth to Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, who will reign forever, God says. She'll give birth to the Messiah, the one for whom her people have been waiting for hundreds of years, and uh, the one about whom the prophets prophesied in prophecies like we saw last week in Micah chapter 5. And she's the one that the Messiah is going to call Mommy. And he's gonna, she's going to bring him up and, you know, I don't know what they use for diapers, you know, change his diapers and wipe his butt. And she's the one that the Messiah is going to be running around with, keeping him out of trouble. She's going to be responsible for keeping him alive. That, that's going to be her job in this. And Mary then went to visit her older relative, Elizabeth, in the hill country of Judah. And from Nazareth to this hill country, it was about uh, 80 or 100 miles, so it take three or four days. And when she arrives, both of the women rejoice at, at what God is doing in Mary's life. And then Mary bursts out in this song of praise to God. And there's many echoes from the Old Testament, some psalms and some from the prophets and, um, and other places. And as Mary went on her journey from Nazareth over those couple days, you can kind of 
think, like, she's just thinking over, what did that angel say to me? And what is God doing in my life? And she's thinking over the Old Testament, what she's been taught growing up, and she composes this song. And you think about um, people that you hear just pray powerful prayers because they've been just soaked in the Bible their whole life, and now their prayers are just sound like they come from Scripture. And that's what Mary's prayer, or her song here, sounds like. It just seems like it comes straight out of the Bible. And the major theme of this song is our big idea for today, and it's this. God lifts up the low, but brings down the proud. God lifts up the low, but brings down the proud. God lifts up the low, but brings down the proud. And uh, if you wanted to get more specific, Mary sees that God is doing this through the son that she's now pregnant with, through Jesus. He's going to do this through Jesus her son, the Messiah, and his kingdom. This is what God is, God's kingdom on earth is going to be a place for the humble. It's not going to be a place for the proud. And as we look at this song, we're going to learn an important lesson about how does Mary see the glass? Does she see it half full, half empty? And how do proud people see the glass? Do they, how, what do they, uh, what, how do they look at it? And what difference does that make? And there are many ways to break apart Mary's song. There's, I mean, there's like several options I saw as I was looking at this. We're going to look at it in two parts. Um, verses 46 through 50 focus on how God has worked in Mary's life personally. And then verses 51 through 55 focus on how God works uh, in everyone's life. And so verses 46 through 50, how God has worked in Mary's life. Mary begins by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. These two lines are parallel. They're saying the same thing in different words, and so they like complement each other and build on each other. And the word magnify literally means to enlarge or to make great, like how a magnifying glass enlarges anything underneath it. You're putting it over it, and it enlarges it and magnifies it. And in this religious sense, it's saying, you know, I want to, you know, I want to magnify God. I want people to see how big and how great, how awesome He is. She wants to praise and to glorify him. She's magnifying the Lord, meaning she's, she's making much of him. She wants to put the spotlight on him. She wants to put him on the big screen. She doesn't want to be in the big screen. She's like, I want to magnify him. I just want to put him up there so everyone can see him. And maybe you've seen a, a play or a stage performance when, you know, maybe, uh, like I remember Katie and I saw um, Newsies down in uh, Chicago, and, you know, at the end of the show, um, people come out, all the performers come out, and they kind of group them up by how the, uh, they acted on the stage together. And they come out, and they do their bows, and people come out one by one, and they do it. And usually at the end, you have the, the main two, or one or two actors, uh, performers come out, and they're bowing. Uh, but sometimes you have one person that everyone recognizes, or two people that people recognize. This person is like really the star of the show, and so it's like they come out, and everyone maybe steps back, and then they're like in the middle, and it's like everyone, even the other performers are like, you know, this is the real star. Or maybe they bring the director or somebody working backstage. Like, hey, you come up here. You come up on stage. Like, you're behind the scenes, but you come up here. And everyone stands back, and they put them, and they, like, magnify them. It's like, she's saying, like, I'm not the star of the show. I, I have a role in this, and God's given me a role, but I want to magnify God. I want to step back. I want everyone to be clapping for him. Like, he's the star here. I want to magnify him. I have a role, but it's not about me. The other way for her to say it in the second line is that her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. She's filled with joy. She's rejoicing in God. God has chosen her for a role 
to give birth to the Messiah who will bring salvation. But Mary is not the Savior. She says God is the Savior, including her Savior. And this is a, a, her saying, God, you're my Savior. Even I'm the one giving birth to the Messiah, but this Messiah is the one who's going to save me too. And the way we make God look great in our lives is to rejoice in Him. The way we put God on the big screen in our life and put the spotlight on Him is to rejoice in Him as our Savior. And she gives the reason for magnifying God and rejoicing in Him, starting in verse 48. She says, For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. And to look on someone, you know, she, she says, He's looked on me. So to look on someone in this sense means to show special concern and loving care for them. And Elizabeth her relative said something similar in verse 25 when she said, The Lord has looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. And how did he do that? It was by allowing her to become pregnant. And it's, you know, it's this thing where she's like, I'm old, I've been barren, I haven't been able to become pregnant, but now God has looked upon me to take away my reproach among my people. And so, in Elizabeth's case, God looked on her barrenness and enabled her to become pregnant. In Mary's case, God looked on her humble estate and then did what? What does this mean? Uh, humble, humble estate refers to Mary's social and economic status. She's not rich. She's not powerful. She lives in a rural town. She isn't high class. She's betrothed to a carpenter. And so she isn't anyone special in the world's eyes. And even if you want to go deeper, she lit, she's among a people. Uh, the people of Israel at this time are under Roman occupation. The empire of Rome has taken over their country. And so they're, in a way, a, an oppressed people. And so God's looked down on her humble estate, both her social and economic status, and then her being a part of a people who have been taken over by the Roman Empire. And she's like, God's looked down on my humble estate. And Mary also calls herself God's servant. When the angel Gabriel brought the message to Mary, her final response to that was, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She sees herself as God's servant. But what is it that God has changed for Mary? What is, what's the situation that's changed for her? The next part of verse 48 tells us. So verse 48 says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Whenever you see behold in the Bible, it's always trying to get you to look at something. It's like, uh, you know, if you guys were all kind of doing your own thing, and I was like, hey, hey, look over here. And I like wanted you to really look at something. That's what behold is doing. It's saying, behold. And it's like, hey, look at this. Look what God has done here. And he's saying, uh, she's saying, behold, look at this. Now all generations will call me blessed. And so... Mary is God's servant for a glorious purpose, and she's going to give birth to the one called Son of the Most High, who will sit on the throne of his father David, and who will have a kingdom of no end, who will be the Son of God. But she sees herself as the most unlikely of people to be chosen for her service. In God choosing her, he is reversing her status in the world. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's a nobody who's becoming somebody who will be known for the rest of human history. And, and it's amazing that what Mary says here comes true. You know, behold, she's, at this point, babe, Jesus is like 
not even a bump on her tummy. He's just this little zygote inside of her, if you're familiar with uh, those stages of pregnancy. And this was written 2,000 years ago, when she's just got told by this angel, goes and visits her you know, a couple days afterwards. This is five days or whatever into her getting conceiving, pregnant. And so she's telling her relative, all generations are going to call me blessed. And we take it for granted today that we talk about the Virgin Mary who gave birth to Jesus. And she was his mom. But with vibrant faith, Mary believed what God was going to do. So think about this. What, what else was Mary famous for? I mean, she didn't preach great sermons. She didn't perform any miracles. She didn't have a spectacular death, like, you know, a martyr to be known for that. Mary is famous for being a mom. That's what she is famous for. But she's the most famous mom in human history. And in this moment, she just completely believed what God said to her and tells her relative, I'm going to be known throughout the rest of human history for being the mom of the Messiah. And that's what she's saying. Look at this. She says, behold, look, all the rest of human history is going to see note this about me. And how has this happened? She continues in verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This is a song of praise about God's greatness. God looked on Mary's humble estate and exalted her. He has done great things for her. She magnifies God and rejoices in him. And she says, all generations are going to call me blessed, not because of something I have done, but because of what God has done. He has done great things for me. I haven't done anything great. He looked on my humble estate. I'm poor. I'm needy. I'm nothing in the world's terms, but he's looked at me and he's done, he has done great things for me. I haven't done anything great. She says, holy is his name, meaning holy is his person. Holy means unique and set apart. And for God to be holy means there is none like him, no one like him. He's totally unique, unlike any other. And this is continuing to magnify him. She's saying there's no one else like this who could take little old me and make me into the one to give birth to the Messiah so that everyone's going to know my name. Only God would do that. Like, why would God choose any somebody like me? Only this kind of God would do that. And verse 50 summarizes. She says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This verse names what Mary has been shown, mercy. And the Greek word here for mercy is the word used to translate the Hebrew word hesed, which we'll see in Micah in chapter 6. This has a deep and rich meaning. It speaks of God's compassionate, loyal love. Each of those words is meaningful. Compassionate is, a, is this, feeling, this, um, this like gut-level, warm feeling towards someone of like, I need to do something about their situation. Loyal means there's this commitment. I'm not going to let you go. It's unfailing. And it's love. And it leads him to act on behalf of those in dire need with whom he's in relationship. There's this commitment he has to his people. And he has this commitment to Mary. It says uh, she fears him. He's acted on Mary's behalf out of compassionate, loyal love in her situation, her humble estate. And he's acted on her behalf now. And so it names what Mary has received. Mercy, that's what God has shown her. It also names those who receive mercy. God said, it says those who fear him. 
We've seen that Mary's attitude and posture toward God is someone who trusts and worships him. She's the kind of she's the right kind of person for this task. That she's someone who's giving her life to God, saying, I'm trusting you, I'm walking with you, I uh, in relationship with you, and God acts with loyal, compassionate love towards those people. What does God's mercy do for people who fear him? God's mercy exalts nobodies to a place of honor. And this isn't just for Mary, it's for any who feared him. Mary generalizes it. it. His mercy is for those who fear him. She doesn't say, his mercy is for me because I fear him. She expands it out like, this is what he's done for me, but his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What God did for Mary, he will do for anyone who fears him. And so our big idea for day, today is, is that God lifts up the low but brings down the proud. And we see Mary marveling at how God would take her from this low position she was in and lift her up to where she is. But she doesn't, I mean, she doesn't become rich, right? She doesn't become rich and powerful. Uh, she's still, in the world's terms, uh, she isn't, she's poor. Uh, she's still a carpenter's uh, husband or wife. Um, those things don't really change for her, but she becomes this person that we all uh, honor as the Virgin Mary who gave birth to uh, Jesus. When Mary looks at her glass, she is overwhelmed by how much God has poured into it. And because of that, because of what she sees, she, that joy is pouring out of her now. And she's saying, I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing to impress you, God, and yet you've done this for me. I'm low-income, low-social class. I'm a no-name teenager living in an insignificant town, Nazareth. People like make fun of Nazareth. You can read it in Jesus' life. People say, oh, the, he, Jesus of Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? People like make fun of the town she's living in. But what does God do? He chooses her. He looks on her humble estate. He did great things for her. His mercy is for her. All generations will call her blessed. And she says, there's no God like him who does things like this. So that's what God is doing through bringing Jesus into Mary's life as being his mom. But is our story any any different? We think about, what do we have to offer God? We have nothing with, with which to impress God. We have nothing to offer God. And standing before him, we're in this humble estate and we look at our glass, and it would be, without him, it would be empty. But what does he do for us when we turn to Jesus and let Jesus into our life? God was bringing Jesus into her life, very different way than he brings him into our life. Obviously, we aren't giving birth to Jesus. Um, But we are born again um, through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would come into our life to live in us. What does he do for us when we turn to Jesus and let him into our lives? He takes us out of our spiritual poverty. He makes us spiritually rich, gives us uh, every spiritual blessing in Christ. He forgives us of all our sin. He adopts us as beloved children. He makes us heirs of everything that belongs to him. And he promises that we will inherit a new creation. We go from whatever situation we find ourselves in, in this life, you know, however much money you have in your bank account, house, uh, however people know you, however much uh, respect or how impressed people are with you that God says, it doesn't matter, you're my beloved child and this is what I think of you and one day you're going to inherit the earth. He says that you know, all those beatitudes he writes about, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will 
for the kingdom of God is theirs. And so I wonder how you think about your relationship with God. I wonder uh, how you think about what he's called you to do. Do you stand before him speechless that he would do such great things for you? Does your jaw drop? Do you ever pinch yourself to see if you're dreaming? Uh, That seems to be what Mary is doing. It's just like, uh, she like can't believe what God has done for her. She's like, uh, I, I'm just magnifying the Lord. My spirit is rejoicing. I, it's like my whole being. I just, I can't, he's just done such great things for me. It's like, you know, pinch me. Is this even real? Like her jaw just drops. Like, I, I can't believe he would do this for me. And we should be thinking, you know, I'm blessed beyond my wildest dreams. I don't deserve what I have. What an amazing God I serve. There's none like him. No one is this great. And we should be you know, just gushing about him. And in some ways, we're the same, we're the same as her in that uh, she had already been told to her that this is going to be the case for you. This is how God's going to use you and bless you. Uh, but it hadn't yet happened yet. Which at this point, how many people know her when she talks to Elizabeth? I mean, nobody knows her. And yet she's rejoicing about it. And so there's things that God says to us, like you're going to be an heir of uh, a new heaven and a new earth, that you're going to live uh, in my presence forever. And then it's like, well, you know, that's just really hard to be happy about that because how horrible things are right now. But it's like she's rejoicing in something, having this vibrant faith of holding on to that. Like, this is what God's going to do for me. And so we can look forward to that future of like, God, this is what you're going to do for me. And it just overflows us with praise. Can we let our heart be full of what God has spoken to us and can we let that seed birth joy in us like Mary had because we know the tree it will become uh, later on. And so God's going to work this way in the whole world, not just in Mary's life. And, and Mary has been looking forward to the future. She sees how future generations will call her blessed. In the rest of her song, Mary looks into the future and paints a picture of how uh, what God will do uh, what he's going to do for uh, everybody in the future. In doing so, she tells us how God works in everyone's life. And so verses 51 through 55 tell us how God works in everyone's life. And so let's read verses 51 through 53 to start. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And these verses expand on a theme of reversal. Where Mary focused on, okay, I'm, I'm a person of humble estate, and he's exalted me. And she's a specific example of someone in that position. Like, okay, this is how God is exalting people of humble estate. But now she includes how God interacts with those who are proud and not humble. And verse 51 starts by saying, He's shown strength with his arm, and God's might work on Mary's behalf. Uh, but in verse 51, God's strength is used to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The, the proud are opposed to God from the core of their being, of their hearts. From their heart flows intentions and thoughts and plans and actions that are in opposition to God. But God scatters them. This is a, a common image of defeat. Psalm 89.10 says, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arms. So you can imagine, you know, an army, if there's an army that's uh, organized and coming against people, um, when an army, like, uh, is defeated and retreats, it just kind of, like, scatters and runs off for their life. 
what they devise in their hearts is thwarted, their plans not come to pass. In verses 52 through 53, get more specific about the proud. Mary has in mind the proud are powerful and rich. The powerful will be brought down from their thrones. The rich will be sent away empty. And on the other hand, those of humble estate will be exalted and the hungry will be filled with good things. And so we may ask ourselves, okay, does God hate rich people and love poor people? And we may be thinking like, okay, like I'm not hungry. I have food. This might be a problem for me. Uh, is God going to send me away empty? Like, okay, I'm maybe not like super rich, but I have money to buy all the things I'm, I'm needing. And so uh, am I one of the rich and powerful that uh, they're talking about? I'm not out there begging and you know struggling. Maybe there's things that I, I can't get everything I want, but you know, I'm doing pretty good. I have a house, I have a car, I, you know, we might have pets, and we do things that we are wanting to do. And so are we the rich and powerful? Does God hate rich people and love poor people? Will poor people automatically be saved? Is there no hope for the rich and powerful? Well, the backdrop for these actions is what Mary said in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His strength acts on behalf of those who fear him and acts against those who are prideful. God opposes the proud, and that includes the prideful poor. A poor person who's prideful uh, isn't going to receive any more mercy than a rich person who's prideful. Poor people can be proud too. And God exalts the humble. And that includes the humble rich. A rich person can be humble. And there's stories of humble rich people in the, in the Gospel according to Luke. And, and if we kept reading, the poor who refuse to turn to God will not find their status reversed. And Mary is the example uh, for how to respond to God if you're in a humble estate. Even the rich who humble themselves will find that God exalts them. Because if we, the the issue is that people who are rich and powerful have a harder time seeing that they need God, and that's why um, that's why the target here. Often people who are in a poor situation find that yeah, I don't I don't feel very powerful at all, and so it's easier for somebody in that situation to turn uh, to God sometimes. But that's what uh, both need to recognize. You know what? Before God, I'm in a humble state. I'm poor and needy before God. And both of them can, whether you're poor uh, in earthly sense or rich in earthly sense, both can say, yeah, but I still don't need God. Uh, they both can say, like, yeah, I'm not going to humble myself before God. And that's where the key is. So, but when will these actions take place? The Bible makes clear that these actions are typical of how God acts. They, he exalts the humble, but opposes the proud. And so in one sense, it's already happening. It's the principle of wisdom that pe- pride people, proud people fall. But we do see that people like Mary have already been exalted from their humble estate. All generations already call her blessed. Those who put their faith in Christ, in one sense, have already been exalted in union with Jesus. We've been, uh, when we were dead in our sins, we've already been made alive, raised with Him, and seated with Him at, the, at His right hand. But these actions are also our future. For when Jesus returns, Jesus will 
will bring them to final completion in the future when he uh, raises all those who trusted in him and he exalts those who trusted in him and he brings down all of those who have rejected him. What his, his kingdom is already here and it has not yet been fully uh, implemented and established. And so Mary concludes with a focus on Israel, verses 54 and 55 say, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God has helped Israel, his servant, just like he looked on the humble state of Mary, his servant. And the reason that he helps Israel is in remembrance of his mercy. It's not as if he forgot it and then all of a sudden, you know, he's going along and like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be merciful to Israel. Uh, but remember is, is a covenant word. It's, it's a commitment word. He's in covenant relationship with them. He's committed to them. And this means God is keeping his commitment to them. It's the same kind of mercy he showed to Mary and to those who fear him, acting on their behalf in their dire need. And verse 55 tells us that God is acting in accordance with what he spoke to their fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. Mary reaches back into ancient times when God first made this covenant with her ancestor Abraham. God is now fulfilling those promises. God is working now in Mary's life on behalf of the people of Israel fulfillment of those promises he spoke 2,000 years earlier. And she's trying to say, like, God's fulfilling all of that. This is all in fulfillment. And our big idea is that God lifts up the love but brings down the proud. And if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you'll see that God is always dealing with people who are of humble estate. God makes a habit of choosing to work with people who are unimpressive. Abraham was unimpressive. His son Jacob was unimpressive. David was an unimpressive choice for king. The people of Israel were unimpressive. All throughout the Bible, God works in the lives of people who don't have anything to offer him. They come empty-handed. The world would just pass them by. But they fear God, and he does mighty things for them, and his mercy is for them. And Mary's song is a preview of how God is going to work through Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return. And that's what he's saying, that God, Mary's saying that God lifts up the low. God is working through people who are unimpressive. They don't have anything to offer him. They come to him poor and needy with these empty hands of, God, I don't have anything to offer you. I'm in a humble estate before you, but you're the one who does mighty things for me. And so Mary is rejoicing in God. And so we can ask, what's the key to her joy? It's how she sees herself and how she sees God. And so, as we think about our own lives, how can we be singing songs like Mary? As we sing these Christmas carols this month, leading up to Christmas Eve, how does Mary see herself? The key to her joy is how she sees herself and how she sees God. She sees herself as someone who's poor and needy before God, but who's been tremendously blessed by God. She sees herself as God's servant, ready to do his will. She doesn't see God as her servant who is supposed to be ready to do her will. And she doesn't see herself as impressive. And so is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as someone who is poor and needy before God? That when you come before God, without him, the cup will be empty. God, I'm just poor and needy. I'm bringing you nothing here. And anything you give me is a humongous blessing. Everything in my life, my my car, my house, my kids, my my health, my ability to walk, my clothes. Um, not to mention, those are all the material things. 
uh, not to mention uh, salvation. I brought nothing to the table in being saved and being part of your family, and you've given that to me. Do you see yourself as God's servant, ready to do his will? Or do you see God as the person who's supposed to be doing your will? God, I, bring, I give my prayer request to you, and I hope you answer. That's him being your servant, rather than, you know, I'm your servant, do with me according to your word. Do you see yourself as unimpressive? What is Mary's view of God? God is powerful and has used his power to do mighty things for her. God is merciful and has acted on her behalf. God has done something for her that she didn't deserve. There's nothing impressive about her that would make God pick her. God has exalted her. God is faithful to his promises. Mary is impressed with God and not herself. And so when she thinks about what, whatever is in her cup, whether it's half full or half empty, she just looks and like, God, by his might, has been merciful to me. He's filled it up. I, couldn't, I didn't do it myself. I didn't deserve it. God, by his might, has shown me mercy. He's filled it up. And everything in there, I'm just, you know, she's just ecstatic about it. Like, this doesn't, shouldn't even be in here. And God's given it all to me. So is this the view of yourself and of God that you have? And the easy way to tell is whether you're magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God your Savior like she is. And so if you aren't, why aren't you? What blocks joy in our lives? What, what blocks us from magnifying the Lord? And this is, as I've been, the last several months, um, my Gospel Fluency group knows us that since the summer I've been really asking myself, you know, where am I finding my joy? And just trying to get to the root of, like, what do I really look to for joy? Um, is it, am I finding my joy in the Lord? Or am I looking at to um, things like TV shows on Netflix or to food or to ministry outcomes like this? You know, if we do this, then this will happen in the church or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, uh, am, am I, like, thinking, like, I need to do all these things to get my cup filled up and this is what I deserve. And then, you know, am I ending up being resentful or, or what are the things that I keep going to that are just like, that is, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like the striving after win. You keep grabbing for it and you just never catch it. It's like, you know, one more, it just never gives you the joy you want. And so we... You need to look at if, are we magnifying the Lord and rejoicing God our Savior like Mary is and if not what's blocking that and what blocks it is pride so what is a prideful person's view of themselves prideful people say I'm independent and I'm deserving those are like the two messages I'm independent and I'm deserving so if you think you're independent it means you think you're self-sufficient what you have you work for you take care of yourself you rely on yourself so whatever's in your cup, it's like, I'm independent. If it's half full, I got it there. I got my job, I got my house, I got my car, I got my clothes. Like All of that here is not a gift from God. I, I got the here. I'm independent, I'm not dependent. And if you think you're deserving of it, you're feeling entitled. Like, yeah, all that stuff was owed to me. I worked hard for that money and I bought that thing. And rich and powerful people often walk around with like, you know, if I get bad service at a restaurant, I deserve good service. And so there's this entitlement, you know, and that can, that's just one really easy example, but then we can walk around with it to all of life. Like, no, this is my right to have things this way. You deserve what you have or you deserve more. 
And what is a private person's view of God? Since they're living independent, they aren't dependent on God. They're self-sufficient, relying on themselves. They aren't looking to God. They don't think they need God. And since they think they're deserving, God owes them what, uh, what they've been given, or they owe, or he owes them more. They're entitled to it, and God is more of their servant. And so a proud person who is rich may look at their glass and think, I got myself here on my own, and I deserve what I got. I brought it here. I may walk around with a sense of entitlement. A poor person who uh, is proud might be like, I don't have much in my cup, and you know nobody's going to help me out here. I've got to take care of myself. I'm independent. This is just me. And they might be bitter and resentful about how little is in their cup. And they feel like they deserve more. There should be more in there instead of think, being uh, looking, uh, being uh, thankful and looking to God. And so the more we see how much God has given, the greater our joy in Him will be. And in order to do that, we have to see ourselves as poor and needy before God. And what we see in Mary's story she sees this is the initial movement God is making to bring Jesus into our world and ultimately for him to grow up into an adult and die on the cross uh, for our sins and to be establish his kingdom on earth and one day for it to be fully here on earth for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Mary sees this is what's going to happen. God wants to exalt the low, the humble. He wants to bring down the proud. And if we want to be uh, living in a true relationship with God in the way he meant it. We need to be people who say, be low before God and say, God, this is how I want to live. And I want to see my glass, whatever is in it, is that you put it there. I'm poor and needy before you. And I'm totally undeserving it because of your mercy. So let's pray. Father, would you help us to be receiving the great gift that Jesus himself is that we do not deserve his coming. We do not deserve that he came to die for us, live the life we are supposed to live, save us. We do not deserve anything else you give us in our life. You help us to be low and humble before you, that we would be exalted uh, as you bring us salvation. And as we receive the salvation from the penalty of our sins and we're saved from the power of our sins and we look forward to being saved from the presence of our sins. Lord, would you fill us with joy in these things. Since then we pray. Amen.